this testimony is not just because he's from Texas. Um, but I think that uh, his sharing challenges us to realize that um, for most of us, our walk with the Lord is a process. And even in his particular life, we can hear his testimony of how he went through difficulties. He had uh, what most people would classify as a success in many ways, and still there was an emptiness. Today we're going to be looking at at Paul, and um, maybe Asodesne. Okay, so we're committed to a taller experience. There we go. Thank you so much. Which honestly having done training all over China, to have any kind of a uh, pulpit is a wonderful experience. So tall or small, and we can deal with it. Um, Today, though, I want to go ahead and have us look at Paul and what his testimony is for us, what his sharing is. And as we look at chapter 4, we see a letter that is being concluded. We have looked through through his first three pages, or three chapters, if you will. And today we're going to be looking at the fourth page uh, as he uh, begins to move in defining why it is and what it was that he was uh, concerned about in writing. And so as we look at the Scripture, I would like for us to take just a moment and look at chapter 4, verses uh, 1 through about 9. And we just heard three of those verses read, so it's mainly just beginning at the very... Uh, front of the chapter. It says in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Lysitheke to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, and then he uses a name actually, and it's referred to as a yoke fellow here, and there's still debate as to whether it's a specific Greek name or not, but that matters not to us because the meaning is yoke fellow. And he says, uh, Help those women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And then we read a few moments ago where it continues on. It says, be not anxious. And it talks about the peace of God. So in the first nine verses of uh, uh, chapter 4, we can see uh, where Paul, as a church planter, had uh, taken the opportunity to write back to a church that he had started. He wrote back to that church to try to give them words of encouragement. And in verse 1, he even expresses his heart very much to say, I long for being with you. You're my dear friends. My connection with you is, is deep and, and is, is vital. And yet, even in the midst of that, he continues on. And he shares some of his concerns for some of the brothers and sisters within the church who are struggling and having some issues. He said, it's truly though my joy and my crown to be in touch with you people because it was the creator of the universe that put together our relationship. And uh, Paul was excited to hear from them. But unfortunately, I guess one of the things we have to recognize as he goes into verse 2 and 3 is that any time you place people together, there is the potential for some level of conflict to occur. And so he has seen or heard about, in this particular case, 
two of the sisters who have been having some, some relationship issues. And Paul's seeking to send a letter initially to give mainly encouragement and praise and joy. And even from verse, uh, verse 1 all the way through the end of the book, during all four of those chapters, he speaks of joy, of joy, of joy. And here we're looking joy in the hands of God. And he's trying to be optimistic and positive, and yet within the joy, there's the reality that people are sinners, and people do make mistakes, and people do have conflict. And so Paul is sending a letter with a, a positive intent, and yet there's a sense of opportunity and responsibility in his heart to assist the church if a problem exists. Having been their church planner, he does not desire to see them having internal strife. And you know, I don't know how you are about the words opportunity or responsibility, but to me these are two words that have great relationship. But one is very much uh, a positive word as it's something we tend to grasp, and that's our opportunity. Our responsibility some of the time is something we feel more out of a sense of obligation to try to assist. And I think as Paul writes here, he's basically saying a little of both. He took the opportunity because he was writing to friends whom he felt that he could be honest with. He could be transparent with. He could say, I have heard of this issue and and you need to do something about it. But it was also a sense of responsibility for saying, this is a body of people that have come together to serve the Lord. And I, having been their pastor and their church planter, feel an obligation, a responsibility to point out what the mistakes are and what the situation is. Today we're looking at the fact that joy and God's peace come from the Father. Uh, For me, I didn't plan today to begin starting off with looking at a particular scripture, but I do have one that I think we need to reflect on. Matthew chapter 5 verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. The reason I mention blessed are the peacemakers is very much in line with what Paul has written here as well. The issue is we know, you know, I know, there are wars that have been going on around our world all the time. There are conflicts of a that come between people, difference of views. My goodness, just yesterday we saw this massive number of protests around the United States and in in other countries that were pressing forth their ideas and their dreams out of frustration with what they've been hearing from a governmental or political leader. And so people do express their ideas. But a peacemaker... And a person who lives in peace may or may not be identical. I think it's something that we need to remember. A peacemaker is one who steps forward to assist the peace process to occur. Now, you know and I know that we've got a situation there where none of us would like to dream of going into war or being a a war combatant. And yet, there are many people who are in military service who really would much prefer the joy of remaining peaceful in their own country. But in order to be a peacemaker, some of the time it requires of us the willingness to stand up and say that which is important and to assist peace to occur. Um, As we look at Paul, we have to remember that in some ways Paul was a grandfather and a father to the church that he was writing to. 
He saw conflict. That wasn't a war that he necessarily saw going on within the church. But he had heard and he knew and recognized that conflicts in churches between people are seldom individual. Individual in the sense that it does not impact others. If we have verbal and open conflicts within a church, it does impact others. And Paul pointed that out. As we look at the lifestyle witness of these two women in verses 2 and verses 3, we can see that Paul said it was worthy of his time to say to the church at Philippi, do something about it. He contacted this yoke fellow. He contacted Clement and contacted the church and said, don't allow that kind of tension to continue long term. It will do damage to you and it will do damage to the reputation of Christ. There was a sense of urgency in the relationship that he would not allow himself to simply put his fingers in his ears or close his eyes and pretend like it did not exist. Because in one short letter, he took enough time to make specific reference using names in order that people would deal with whatever level of matter it was. I feel certain that Paul's church wasn't a congregational church that was written, that he was writing and saying, please have a committee meeting and then vote on it and maybe within the next three months you'll make a decision of how to deal with them. Paul wrote and gave explanation immediately using names because he said, this cannot do anything but damage to the church if whatever conflict it was continued. I think it's one of our challenges as brothers and sisters in a church to recognize that we have responsibility in our church to have peace amongst ourselves. We need to be peacemakers. Not necessarily to get that gun that I was talking about connected with war. I'm not, we don't want anybody shooting anybody in here. But we do need to recognize that we need to speak up. We need to be encouragers. We need to point out the reality that our witness and our testimony impacts the lives of others. Reviewing our motivation before we speak is important. And Paul understood that. He valued relationships and valued them enough to be a risk taker. Brothers and sisters, what I would see when I read what Paul had to say is a man who dared to run a risk in writing something to a church that he knew he was not going to be in the midst of functioning as their pastor. But he still ran a risk by saying, Please, church, be responsible. The situation with these two represents an organization or a group of people who have forgotten their first love. And that reminds me to look in Scripture in Revelations chapter 2, verses 2 to 5. And I'll read that where it says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and how you cannot bear to be with those that are evil. And you have tried... Uh, them which say that they are apostles and are not, and have found them to be liars, and have borne and have patience, and for the name's sake labored, and have not fainted. Nevertheless, in spite of all these good things, I have somewhat against you, because you have lost your first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou hast fallen, and repent, and do the first works of service. The reminder is to say, 
It's easy to become distracted in the world that you and I live in. I know I had some people who had contacted me about this woman's march that occurred yesterday. They said, well, we're excited that they're going to have this huge woman's march and have all these women saying that we're important and we're going to do it. But I'm still not really sure what the purpose is. There were some that were saying, I'm still not real clear. It's really nice to see them standing up. If we get unclear of what we're doing, our message is unclear as well. If we lose our first love, even though these people were going to church and these two ladies were present in the church and with good intention were serving in the church, they still had conflict in their heart. I think we need to recognize sin influences your life, my life, everyone's life. Selfishness gets into all of our lives. We all can be misdirected and lose our first love. And the reminder here from Paul is to say, I know that these two are confused. Please, church, stand up. Don't allow it to continue because it's hurting them and it's hurting the witness of the church. Step in. Take action. It's not easy. Paul urged them to be of one mind in the Lord. I'm not sure that agreeing in one mind necessarily means that both have to compromise in all that they believe. But he was certainly reminding them not to focus on a win-lose scenario. Oftentimes we see people who are in conflict and one is wanting to win and one is wanting to also win. And so it's a confliction there that's pretty significant. And Paul is saying that kind of an approach will never benefit them nor the kingdom. Paul moves on in verses 4 and 5 and he says, Rejoice and encourage forbearance is what he said. Just as true Christians today present values and thinking that is viewed as radical and political, Paul encouraged moderation and fairness and forbearance. He, he encouraged the church to use its evaluative skills to determine that which was most effective and most right. Not everything is cleanly black and white as we would like it to be. Certainly, I as an American, when it came to an election opportunity recently, was certainly not as nice and clean as I would have liked. I wrote and talked to a friend of mine just this week. And I said, you know, my problem was the guys that I would have liked to elected for president were out of the running months ago. Months ago. So what we had for choices were less than ideal. Life is not always as good and clean and black and white and easy to function with as one might desire. Paul is saying to the church, be responsible with those that call themselves Christian and function in your midst. Then he gives a list of standards in verses 6 to 9. And he goes through this, this list of standards it's, a, it's sort of a study of the peace of God, but it talks about the relationships and characteristics and expectations for what people are being. He mentions being true. People who are true. Think on these things, that which is true. Now, the problem is, when you and I watch most of the media, or most of what we read, or most of what we hear, or who you work with in your office, you're listening to... The vast majority of input, which is heavily non-Christian. 
their values and expectations and what they think of as right or wrong are not based on the values of God. It's based on what they think is the best thing. And so Paul writes and he says, be careful and make sure that what you're thinking about is that which is true. That which is honorable. Honorable means worthy of of reverence. Worthy of reverence. That which is just. We remember in Micah 6.8, it also talks about just. To walk justly. To live justly. Pure. That which is pure. We talk about, in Paul's writing, the importance of developing a clean, clear mind. Our thinking, our values, what's down deep in who we are. What is lovely and what is the good report. Paul's trying to challenge the church that he started to say, I'm not with you. Remain the way that you should be. Remain clear. Remain clean. So that the Father can bless you and be proud of you knowing that you are walking in a world that is dark and is dirty. Paul challenged the church to seek higher things of God. He focused on the internal integrity of his hearers as he completed his letter. He reminded them to never allow the challenges of daily life to destroy them. He wrapped up in the daily stresses and talked about those. And I was challenged as I read what he said and how practical it looked because I kept asking myself, what are those things that stress us? Do I ever find myself more concerned about the daily stresses of life, the challenges of life, than I should? Do I think constantly on that which is true, honorable, just, lovely, pure, and of good report? Our time is precious, and those things that come into our minds are the things that guide us. He moves on in the rest of his book, in that particular chapter specifically, moves into verse 10. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord, that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and everything. He's basically here writing a thank you letter because at this point he's saying thank you that this church bothered enough to know he was in prison and to know that in those days the only way a prisoner had food and had, and, and had what he needed daily, the uh, daily uh, caring for himself had to be done by his friends who would bother to bring things to him. And so Epaphroditus was the one that was the messenger sent by the church, coming back and giving him what he needed. And so he's saying thank you to them as he writes here. And it's a thank you for a support gift. And we've had many people who have come back through our church here to also give words of appreciation for what our church has done. But the church at Philippi simply didn't desire to... They did not want to lose contact with him. And and the scripture, uh, as it says, he said that it was impossible for them to 
help him the way they wanted to. And that was because for a period of time they had lost contact. He had traveled so much and been in so many different places, gradually that connection was gone. And yet, what we see in Paul is a, a hunger and a desire to write back, contact the church and say, thank you. And so he wrote back and he said, I know that I've been traveling. I know you've had a hard time finding me, but I'm thankful that you have, have continued to pray for me and be concerned about me. Paul has some wonderful words of appreciation and encouragement as he write, wraps up the letter. And he mentions being content in all circumstances. He's not saying I'm content because I now have a new house, I have a new retirement plan, and I have security and safety in all that I have. Remember where Paul was when he was doing the writing. So again, we get into the issue of contentment and recognizing that our circumstances are not to define what makes us content. We live in a world that teaches us contentment is found in your long-term planning and your financial investing. Now, virtually, Christian or non-Christian, if we had a, a seminar on that topic, we'd feel perfectly comfortable to come and discuss that particular topic. Paul was saying that's, that's not the, the... He's talking about the renewing of the mind. He's saying having a new value system, a new moral system, a new goal orientation. He said, look at me. You know, I mean, if you think through where Paul was from, Paul was maximum in his success financially and in, in every way a leader within his community. He was a, 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 a Jewish uh, guide for, for, for many, many people. People look to him with high respect. And yet, even as he functioned as a Pharisee in his own values, that was not enough once he came in contact with Christ. The walk with Jesus changed his life, changed his values, changed his morals. And he said suddenly, I have got to be more than just a person who memorizes the rules and regulations of my religion. When we look at verse 12, it says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every circumstance, whether, whether well-fed or hungry. And it mentions anxiety in our Scripture. Uh, and he goes ahead and he says, we should never have anxiety in verse 6, it mentions here. Um... He learned to be content. And recently, I know I was in a meeting here in our church with um, some people in the discussion of vision, dream, focus came up. As I listened to the interaction that was going on, I continued to think about my greatest dream for our church. And basically, if I had to define it, I think I would dream that we would have an unrealistic trust in God. That's a strange term, unrealistic trust in God. With a church that has experienced stresses and problems, trust is sometimes something that uh, is hard for us to regain. We often find ourselves wanting to build safeguards that protect us from any kind of an attack 
from others or from without or within. We even uh, have reservations or fears that, that God somehow will manage us in a way that we don't want to be managed. And that threatens us as well. And so therefore have a level of trust challenge there. An unrealistic trust in God is the hope that we'll return to the joys of intentionally being a bit naive. You see, if we say a realistic trust in God for a Christian, that would be a pretty reasonable thought. We would say, well, I have high regard for God. I have high regard for the Word of God, the Bible. And whatever the Bible says, that's what I will allow to guide me. And if it says something that's against what my society says, I still will follow the Bible. That's because I have high regard for the Word of God. And that's a kind, so then it's a very realistic trust we kind of have. But an unrealistic trust of God means something that is beyond reason. Beyond our emotion, beyond that which is logical, something that would demand of us a hunger for being controlled by the will of God. That's my dream. For VCBC, that we would come in contact with issues and the question would never even come into our mind. Should we do this or should we not do this? The only question is, what does God want us to do? What is His will? If I know His will, whether I like it or I don't like it, it the, the issue is settled. That's what Paul was challenging the Philippian church to be like. He was saying, I know you've got people that are causing you problems. I know you've had challenges. But I just want to thank you for your support of me and thank you that you remember the importance of allowing Jesus to be Lord. It is a hope that we will be optimistic while we remain in a society that threatens us in many ways. An unrealistic trust in God says that even in the term itself, we are not using our every effort to protect ourselves from criticism and evaluation. We don't waste our time thinking we can ever cover all possibilities of criticism. Now, that doesn't mean be irresponsible. We do need to make some reasonable decisions. But at the same time, we've got to learn boldness. Naive Boldness. The naivety is the very action of us being unrealistic in our trust of God. We are so much beyond just the practical, I know who God is, I'll do it. We're at the point of saying, I am going to do anything, anywhere, any place He takes. So beyond realistic. I don't even want to be caught up with what's reasonable. I want to be caught up by the will of God. An unrealistic trust in God says that we know that our protector is God and that we believe that that is enough. Our faithfulness, dependence on Christ for our doctrine and service and our total identity as a church is not based on the approval of society. We are His in every sense of the word. Yes, this is, to, to, is what, what I find Paul saying when he says, I have learned the secret of contentment 
And what I dream is the same for you and me at VCBC. In every way, from, from man's perspective, this attitude of dependency is an unrealistic type of trust because it matches nothing that our society says is reasonable. But it does represent my dream for our church. Paul had God confidence, not self-confidence. He revealed his contentment even in prison. You know, he, um, he lived in a day when the, the Stoics and, and uh, others were functioning and they were very good about having this nice uh, theoretical understanding of what peace was being defined by. Uh, it was more of a, a kind of a meditation type of experience, often experienced through some of the, the Indian uh, religions that we know of. Um, and there's nothing evil in necessarily finding a type of peace that is offered in our world. And yet, if that is the only thing we understand when we talk about the peace of God, we are missing the point. You see, maturing Christians are not hard, thick-skinned Stoics. We are moved by the needs around us, the lostness of the society in which we live. We must learn to rely on God's power from within and enable us to withstand the pressures that come from without. Paul said, in Christ, it is in Christ that we find the hope of glory. Verse 21, Paul is wrapping the whole letter up and he says, Thank you so much. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are there, the sisters who are there, the people that are there, all the saints. And then he says, and even those that belong to Caesar's household. Paul knew that even in the midst of the governmental circle that was not Christian, there were believers. And he said, greet them because I know it's not a simple task to remain there and remain on task. Let us seek to be people with an unrealistic trust in God. A trust beyond our own ability to understand. Preparing today for this particular sermon was prior to two days ago when Donald Trump was inaugurated. You know, we talk about our worship services and our churches being relevant, applying to the society in which we live. When I look at Paul's sermon, I have to ask myself, if Paul were writing this letter today, to us in Vancouver, our people in different places all over the United States. There are people who would want to hear some reference to what is going on. The lack of control. The frustrations with leadership that may not represent what we want. Conflicts. Yeah, we're seeing conflicts. Wars. There are wars all around the world. I think it's important for us to remember in every way, as we seek to have an unrealistic trust in God, we are following the one true Lord of the total situation. If we don't believe that God knew Donald Trump would one day become President of the United States, bringing in whatever that may be, we somehow are missing the whole concept that He is the Creator of the universe. Let us remember, we are the created 
not the Creator. Let us pray. Father, as we humbly come before You and recognize that we do not understand all that's going on in the world around us, we do give You praise that we can read a letter of vast encouragement from Paul as he cared and sent back to the Philippi church. Father, we would ask that we would have the courage to see our responsibility, our obligation, our opportunity to serve You. That we would grasp that our faith is more than just a theoretical religious experience, but it's something that can change the world. Father, help us to know how to pray for our world. Instead of griping and complaining, Father, we would ask that You would change our hearts, that we would be what Paul has mentioned in chapter 4, those people of prayer, expecting Your grace, expecting Your peace because we have prayed and requested it. That we would have a sense of peace in our heart that we know that Jesus is our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray today.